Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, Chris Hutchins, the head of autonomous financial planning at Wealthfront. Chris was the insane financial optimizer we all know, and he made spreadsheets for everything. On the pod today, how he turned that experience into starting a company and then selling it to Wealthfront. Also, Chris discusses how he scrapped his way to getting some amazing jobs and what you can learn and copy from his experience. Okay, let's jump in. Okay, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for thanks for hopping on here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, you've got a uh, super uh, cool sounding job, head of autonomous financial planning at Wealthfront. Um, so does that mean you build robots? But uh, I'm, I'm sure it means definitely not that. Financial so I, robots. Financial <laughs> robots. Yeah, financial robots. So uh, I'd love to get it like a quick uh, teaser about like Wealthfront and what you do. And then we'll just kind of like jump back into your story of how you got to this place. Sure. Yeah. So Wealthfront's a next-gen banking service. We help young professionals manage their money. We have a high-interest checking and low-cost investment management products. We have a top-rated mobile app. And our vision is to automate all of your finances. Uh, we call that self-driving money. We think our clients will be able to automatically deposit their paycheck into Wealthfront, and we just take care of the rest, pay their bills, top off their emergency fund, save for the future in retirement investment accounts, and optimize everything from a tax perspective. I love it. I totally see that as the future. I can't uh-huh. wait to get more into that towards the end of this end of this conversation. But uh, as we always do, we start in the beginning. And I don't know what the beginning means for you of you were like an entrepreneurial kid and starting lemonade stands or or uh, or after college, you've kind of started to find your, your place in the world. But I'll, I'll just uh, allow you to kind of start wherever you think the story should begin. Yeah. So I, you know, i I, I remember asking my parents once, like, oh, were there all these entrepreneurial insights? And there were like little small ones, but there wasn't any like really meaningful one. And the one that always really comes up, I mean, I have my fair share of like lemonade stands and that kind of stuff. But the one that uh, came up, so I went to boarding school and I, I you know, I, I grew up in like a, you know, middle class America, upper middle class DC suburbs. But most of the kids at that boarding school had a lot more money than I did. Uh, and so... I remember like early on, I was like, I need to find a way to keep up. So I would order Domino's pizza like almost every night and I would sell it by the slice. So I would just buy pizza and then sell it by the slice and make a few bucks every day. And some days I would eat my profits and someday I would keep them. Uh, and, and that kind of like in high school, I kept coming up with new ways to make money because I kind of felt like I was, I needed to keep up. Yeah. Uh, and you know, there's this balance between being an entrepreneur of just like seeing a problem or maybe just seeing an opportunity. And so that was, that sounds like you saw an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the penultimate, uh, high school one was we had a rivalry with another, uh, school and I made some t-shirts that were, I don't know, maybe questionable. 
And the school was like, yeah, you can't sell these t-shirts on campus. And, uh, you know, I had to eat, eat some losses there and, and my parents helped me out with the hair. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so high school was kind of where that all got started. Oh, I, I kind of see another marketing angle too. Like this is the, the t-shirt that the school says you cannot wear. Well, so when I went back for my five-year reunion, I handed out all the t-shirts that everyone had like pre-ordered but could never have. Uh, funny. Uh, so, yeah. uh, cool. So then after boarding school, I assume you went to college, right? Yeah, I went to school in Colorado. Um, I would say if there's like a theme to my kind of story and out- outlook on work and life, it's, it's I'm like a pretty crazy optimizer. And so, you know, I had this theory going into college that, you know, if I went to a really good school, uh, I would, you know, just be with a lot of other really smart people and it'd be really hard to stand out. And if I went to a school that was not, you know, the Ivy League school, it'd be easier to stand out. And that might be like a better position for me. Uh, and so I ended up going to just a state school in Colorado. It's a good school, but, you know, it wasn't Harvard. It wasn't Yale or Princeton or anything. And, um, you know, just had such a wild, fun experience. Is that the bank? No, no, sorry. No, not, I'm happy to repeat it. I have my phone uh, not on silent. Oh, all good. Um, okay, so yeah, you um, you go to this state school in Colorado, and, and do you stand out there? Yeah, I mean, I think I boarding school definitely prepares you for college in a way that most people don't get prepared. Right, I was living in a dorm for four years, so when I got to college, there was no adjusting to the life of like rigorous academics, living on your own, living in school. And so, you know, I joined a business fraternity, I joined a social fraternity, I joined like the college council in the business school, I like joined the dean's leadership group, like I was doing all kinds of stuff. And so I think definitely I was, I I kind of worked into the role where I was the one who got to present all the speakers when they came in. So anytime someone came to speak at school, I got to spend, you know, 20, 30 minutes with them beforehand, which was cool. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say I had a lot of entrepreneurial things going on in college other than just kind of self-starting and starting groups and clubs and that kind of stuff. But yeah, it was such a fun place to go to college and, you know, get to see a whole part of the country I hadn't spent much time in. Yeah, no, I, I understand. I grew up in Park City, Utah, and all my friends went to school in uh, in Colorado, and I chose the opposite. I said, oh, I want to go to some like prestigious thing on the East Coast. And it was it was fine, but... I, I wouldn't. I would just go to school in Colorado next time. Or I, I don't think I would go to college if I if I did it again. I, I was like the most entrepreneurial kid ever, and I had all these things going and businesses and so many cool things. Uh, then I went to college, and I got like society tell me that like, oh, I had to go do investment banking, and I'm happy I did it. But like, it kind of like derailed my path into this like finance world for a while, and now I'm back to the startups. But but uh, but yeah, that was my journey. Yeah. So my journey was after college, I went and did this thing called investment banking also. (laughs) So I took the same path. Uh, I might've realized more quickly that it wasn't for me, but yeah, it was funny, funny, funny coincidence. Yeah. Okay. So then you go, everyone's saying, oh, look at this prestigious job. It pays lots of money. It's very rigorous and difficult to get. And then you go get it and you're like, oh yeah, like, look at me, I'm, I'm doing well. And then you get this job and, uh, and you really, you said you realized quickly that like, you didn't like it. Well, so what was funny was if there's one knock I have on Colorado State, it was that they didn't adequately prepare me for the fact that you need to get a job after you graduate. <laughs> and so I went home during Thanksgiving of my senior year, and I was talking to a handful of friends from college, high school and middle school, and they all had their jobs lined up. 
And I was like, what do you mean you have your job lined up? We don't graduate for like seven, seven months. And they were like, yeah, you, you got to get a job. Like most of the jobs are, the good jobs are taken. And I was like, well, what's a good job? And they were like, I don't know, investment banking, management consulting. Those are good jobs. So I went back to college after Thanksgiving break and I went straight to the dean's office. I was like, you need to help me find a job, an investment banker, management consultant. And the dean was like, why do you want to do that? I was like, I just do. Like I didn't, yeah. I didn't even take the time to research what that career was. It was just like, I guess if that's the best career, like I should do that. Uh, and so I ended up at investment bank. I would to, to go back to optimization. Uh, I, I got a job in investment. I was late, right? I missed the cutoff for all the regular job openings. And so I got an internship at an investment bank. And, you know, they kind of said, if you like, if, if things work out, maybe you could stick around longer. And then I got a job offer from a management consulting firm, but it didn't start for nine months. And so I just accepted both. And I thought, I'll go to the internship. And if they ask me to stick around, then I have nine months to figure out whether I like it. Otherwise, I have this other option. And nine months in, I realized, man, as like an entrepreneurial spirited person that, you know, would love to work in a meritocracy, uh, investment banking was not that. It was like, no matter how many good ideas you have, your job is this and stay at the office till 3 a.m. and do it. Yep. Uh, so I went to management consulting thinking I would find like this, you know, perfect career opportunity. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is like that. But instead of at the office, you travel a little bit more and, you know, maybe you get a few more frequent flyer miles, but, you know, you're still in the same environment. Yep. So uh, I ended up going to an event called Startup Weekend which was just getting started. And, you know, we all started a couple companies over the weekend. And I was like, where do people do this for a living? And so it was like in San Francisco. And I was like, I have to move there. Like, I just knew right away. I was like, my career will be in San Francisco. How quickly do I get there? Wow. Uh, so, so were the, were the banking and consulting things, were, were, were those in New York? Yeah. So I was in New York and uh, I spent about nine months at one, about nine months at the other. And I immediately went to the company. I was like, hey, can you transfer me to San Francisco? Like, I need to go to San Francisco. And they were like, yes. And this was, I think, let's say September 2008. Oh. And so I got, I moved out to San Francisco. I'm like, oh, this is great. I live in San Francisco and I have a job because rent's expensive. And then November 2008, I got laid off. Uh, so I'm like, well, I knew I wanted to come here. I knew I didn't want this job forever. I was kind of hoping I could get through like the holidays, bonuses, and all the you know great things about working in investment banking, management consulting. But you know that was not that was not in the cards for me. Okay, so but now you're out in San Francisco. You're about to be there right in the right in the start of this of the crisis. And uh, so what uh, what opportunity do you see next? Well, so there weren't a lot of opportunities at yeah. the end of 2008. Uh, so I wasn't really sure what to do. Uh, but I had gone to this weird event called Bar Camp, which was like an unconference where people in tech just kind of like create of content about technology. And I was like, well, this format's interesting. Uh, so I started a conference. Uh, it was completely, uh, you know, unconference style, meaning there was no organizer, there was no fees, and we called it Laid Off Camp. And so we did an event in San Francisco where anyone who'd been affected by the Oh wait, crisis could come and learn from other people that had. So you had, you know, younger people leading sessions on how to use LinkedIn. You had older people talking about uh, how to interview, and that kind of really took off. We ended up doing twenty events around the country. Um, it kind of 
allowed me to build a really strong network, uh, both in the Bay Area and because we had sponsors that were companies hiring. And it turns out those companies that were hiring were a lot of venture-backed companies because they you know, were, had, had money to get them going and weren't relying on the you know, current economy. And so that kind of was a catalyst for me to get to know a lot of people and build a brand. It made $0.00. Uh, so it wasn't a, a, an enterprise that was going to pay the bills, but it was really fun for a couple of years. Wow. That's really cool. Um, kind of reminds me of, uh, of this podcast. Like you just kind of start something. I'm like, I just reached out to my boss at Warner brothers at the time. I was like, Hey, do you want to be on a podcast? I wasn't gonna ask him for coffee, but I just thought it was more interesting to ask. And then someone heard the podcast and business insider wrote like a little post about it. And like things start to like grow. And then you have this platform that, people like you reach out and want to be on and really cool. And then, but it's also a fantastic networking tool. So like everything is about like relationships, right? It's all, it's all about forging relationships with, 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 uh, with people. Yeah. I mean, that would be the theme. So I only got a job at an investment bank coming out of, you know, Colorado state because I built a relationship with the Dean of the business school. And, you know, he, I added value to my, you know, time as a student and he helped me get that, you know, land that job. And uh, I would say, you know, that's like the whole theme of life is, you know, almost everything seems way more serendipitous and driven by, you know, making sure you're in the right places, meeting the right people, getting invited to the right things. And I don't mean that in like a coolest party standpoint. I mean it more in the add value to the kind of people that could influence your career in the future. And don't worry about what kind of value you get back right away. Right. Yep. That's the authentic way to do it. If you do it the other way where it's like, I'm going to just reach out to this person for coffee, but then like ask them for a job within five minutes. It's just like, that's not how the world works. You can't go on a date with someone and be like, all right, should we get married now? Like want to move in? Like it's just, you, there's, there's, there's steps to this. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I went, my wife and I dated for almost a decade before we got engaged. So oh, I'm sure. very aware. She, she must've been a very happy woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no pressure. None. Um, okay. So, so you've got this, this, uh, this conference business and you're meeting people and making no money. Um, and so how does your next thing present itself? Yeah. So I ended up from a bunch of the sponsors, uh, picking up some freelance work. One of them wanted to plan some events. One of them wanted to brush up their financials before fundraising. And so I got to brush off the old iBanking, uh, toolkit. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them wanted help designing like a website to, you know, launch some interesting online events in the online event space. So I had a few projects that generated, you know, enough cash flow to pay the bills. Uh, my wife now, who was then my girlfriend, was working. So thankfully, she had a job and we were living together. So she was covering the rent. And we both, you know, in the 18 to 24 months that I, we were in New York and I was working in investment banking and major consulting, like I did save money. Um, so, you know, this is where things turned totally differently, which was, we thought, okay, I need to put a wrap up on all these independent projects. And my wife was miserable at her job. And we thought, what should we do? And, you know, we've saved some money. It wasn't a lot. You're like, maybe we should take one trip before we like go get these jobs that we're going to work at for a couple of years. So that was the plan. Uh, so we put up a map on the wall. We started putting pins on places that we thought would be fun to go. And one thing led to another, and we ended up packing up everything we owned into a storage unit and backpacking around the world for eight months. Wow. Pretty cool. Uh, Yeah. And I think when you're young, uh, there's no world where I would have been able to do that on the $8,000 budget I had then now. 
you know, now I have a child, like just the, the level yeah. of accommodations you might want. But as a kid, I was able to, you know, or a young adult, uh, you know, stay in hostels that cost $2 a night, couch surf, and do all the things that made that experience so much more accessible. Uh, so that was eight months of my life until we came back to San Francisco. And we're like, now it's time to, you know, get a job and, and build the bank account balance back up. And it's true there is someone for everybody because, you know, not every girl would want to go travel the world with you for eight months and leave her job. And so that's, that's, that's pretty, pretty cool. And, and, and not every relationship, I think, would last <laughs> yeah. eight months 24-7. But uh, I think it was after that trip that we were like, I think we, we can do this. Yeah, so then you just gave it five more years until you engaged her, though. I know, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, so came back to San Francisco, decided I'm going to go find what I, what I thought was the hottest tech company, and I'm going to do everything I can to get a job. And my strategy was not send off a bunch of resumes. It was like laser focused on one company. Uh, I decided like this was the company. I made a presentation. I found someone who knew someone that was an investor and I got them to convince their, the investor to convince the founders to take a meeting where I presented for like 20 minutes about why I thought the industry they were in was so exciting and what they were doing was so exciting. And like, I would take a job, just tell me what to do. Um, and having now run a company, it is so rare that you find someone so excited to work on the thing you're building. Like, of course they hired me. At the time, I was like, I just really hope there's an opportunity here. Uh, and so I got a job and I worked at this company and I was super excited. And, you know, I, I didn't pick a winner. You know, the company didn't work out, but, you know, I had a job and I really got, that's where I really got connected into what it's like to work at a startup, work with a team of engineers and all that. I mean, I just, Chris, the approach I love, like that's, that's so cool. And that back to that idea of, adding value, not just like spraying out resumes, actually saying, look, here's some interesting ideas for you. you want to work in venture capital? Don't just, don't just email a bunch of VCs and say, hey, can I have a job? Like bring them like cool companies that like and build little investment theses for them and like, you know, help help make them see that like you could just hit the ground running uh, and that crazy focus. I, I really, really, really like that. Yeah. So I totally agree. I think a lot of times uh, people that are hiring people or choosing to work with people like the primary decision factor is, do I like this person? Are they excited about what they're doing? Or do I think they're going to work hard? And if you can find a way to demonstrate that, which is virtually impossible on a resume or a cover letter, uh, you can stand out so much better than you could doing anything else. Yeah, totally. Uh, okay, so I love it. And so what was that business? It was a company called Simple Geo. And what they do? Uh, so this was around the time the iPhone 3GS had just come out. It's one of the first phones with location. GPS location. And we were building what I would say is similar to Twilio, which is a, you know, a series of APIs that you can use to add voice to your products, like text messages and phone calls. They were doing for location. So if you wanted to build a mobile app and incorporate location data or location storage into your app, they could do it better than anyone else. Cool. And what did they, what, what, what was the job? Like, what, what did you do there? So I joined work doing business development I ended up moving a little bit into doing product. Uh, I kind of was, you know, trying to find a way to take the technology that they had and turn it into a business. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the challenges with a company that's so technology driven is that you can get caught up in building something that's so impressive technologically, but maybe doesn't have the best business. And so I think 
the I, I did not learn at this time, but I wish I had before learned a lot about product market fit. But I think we were building something that had no product market fit from the get go. Uh, and, you know, there's only so much a young kid who's never worked in, you know, a tech company can do to fix that. And, you know, I, I certainly don't think that I was the, you know, going to save the company or, or the cause of it. But, you know, it was hard. Uh, and so it just didn't work. Sure. Yeah, I mean that the technology was cool, uh, and it ended up some a company acquired it that uses that technology, but it wasn't uh, you know the kind of acquisition that is a home run for anyone. Right. I mean that's how most startups go, but it does sound like you got some some pretty key learnings from it. I did. Yeah, I learned a lot. I I really liked product. Um, you know, I, I got set to product training for like you know agile methodology, and I was like, oh, this is really interesting, and. I built a lot of the skills I use today. Um, in fact, that was probably like my last job as a product manager, right? You know, for for more than a few months, and, and which is what I do today. So cool. Um, I mean, that's how jobs go. You either succeed or you learn. And so it sounds like you got some some great learnings here. And uh, so, what was next? Yeah. So I feel like uh, you know, if anyone ever tells you there's not a story that can turn successful when you change jobs frequently, I, I might present the contrary here. <laughs> um, so one of the, you know, there was a company in the internet space, you know, a decade or so ago called Dig. And one of the, you know, founders, uh, you know, was starting a new company and the company Simple Geo I worked for had a, a bunch of former Dig employees. And so, you know, share overlapping networks. And someone was asking, the guy was asking around, he's like, hey, I want to hire someone when I start this company to join the founding team. And I just need someone who will work hard and just get stuff done and just, you know, we'll do anything. And someone was like, oh, you should call Chris. And so I went out to dinner with this guy. I was like, yeah, that's me. I will do whatever, you know, you want me to be, figure out what benefits we offer. You want me to do payroll. You want me to do partnerships. You want me to do product, like whatever you need, that's what I'll do. And so I joined a small team of seven people and we were getting a company off the ground called Milk. And the idea was like a mobile incubator where we'd try a few different ideas and see if any of them land and, and turn that into a company. Mm, so interesting. And again, just like your approach to just doing whatever it takes, being the janitor. I mean, that's, I love it. Like some people yeah. get so focused on, oh, I need to be the product. It's like, just get into the right company and then you'll figure out how to work your way into the place of where you, where, where you want to be. Get into a place and add value. I would, the only caveat I would say is the bigger the company, the harder it is. But right? sure. if you go join Facebook and you know you join as a janitor, like you <laughs> might have great product ideas, but it's going to be pretty hard to to make that. Better. Well, unless you paint the murals, then yeah. things things oh, work yeah. out pretty well for you. Yeah, then you don't need to work ever again. <laughs> so uh, st still, yeah, just, just any job at a good company. Yeah. So that company was fun. We had a few ideas. None of them totally landed, and we had an opportunity to take the team and go work on things at Google. Uh, so, you know, kind of like a mini aqua hire, if you will. And so went over to Google and joined as a product manager, uh, about 11 months in, we only, we only had the company for a little less than a year. Wow. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, I joined Google, which was like my first job at a big tech company. Oh, it's a good backdoor way into getting a product job at Google, right? Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, I remember after getting laid off, I had applied for a job at Google and I got a rejection email within gosh, three or four minutes. And I was like, man, how could you make a decision about me so fast? I even wrote back and I was like, did anyone actually even look at this? And someone was like, yes, I was at my desk. I saw it come through. I reviewed it. You're not a good fit. Sorry. But I was like, man. And so I was just laughing because like I tried so hard to get this job at Google years back. And now I'm, you know, I'm in Google and it's like, you know, it's just 
it took a different path. Yeah, that's that wasn't that wasn't meant to be before. So so cool. So you're you're now you're at Google, and what what product are you working on there? So I was working on Google Plus, which I think for a lot of people that worked on that product was like the most unfortunate product to be working on because there were so many people working on it. I think we had over a hundred product managers. Uh, there wasn't a strong vision for the product. And so you just, people were working on random things. It was not a fun work environment. And the product, depending on how you looked at the metrics, was either wildly successful or like absolutely useless and no one used it. Uh, and so one set of metrics got, got so many people working on something and the other set of metrics made a lot of people feel like what they were working on was not very meaningful. Uh, and so started looking at whether there was another place at Google that me and at least one of my co-founders from the startup had, could go and have more fun and stumbled on, uh, you know, an opportunity for both of us to move over to Google Ventures and do early stage investing. And so we made the internal transition there. And, you know, for the first time in my career, I found a job that I, you know, worked at for more than a year. Uh, and so I worked at Google Ventures for almost four years. And did you love it? Was venture and in investing in early stage companies right for you? It's interesting. So when I, I spent a lot of time in venture and I, I liked it a lot, I think I assumed, and now knowing everything I know today, I think I was incorrect, but I, I had this kind of imposter syndrome where I was like, gosh, how am I going to be picking these companies and helping them figure out how to grow if I've never really seen that? Right. Every company I've worked at has always been a small startup that didn't kind of make it past the first or second round. How could I be doing this and, and, and advising these founders? And Andy Ratcliffe, the CEO of Wealthfront, and I had a good conversation about what it takes to be a good VC. And having been a good founder is not one of those requirements. And, you know, I think I was treating it more as my job as the investor is to help the startup than my job in the, as the investor is to invest in the company. Uh, and so I, I actually liked the job, but I always felt like I needed to get a couple more experiences under my belt before mm -hmm. I could make it a career. Interesting. And yeah. so I ended up leaving, uh, to go start a company and, you know, about three and a half years in. And so, okay. Well, was it something that you saw, uh, at Google ventures that said, Oh, look at this, look at this company I, I can go start. Like, where did you get the idea for the, for this company? So I've always been this insane financial optimizer, right? Everyone that knows me knows that I'm the person that has like 12 different credit cards and, you know, optimizing every aspect of my financial life and spreadsheets for, you know, any decision I could make and, you know, everything. And so I was always someone that people asked for financial advice. And I kind of felt like it was ridiculous that the best place for them to get advice was from me. Uh, and so I decided, you know, there wasn't a company that I thought at the time with my limited scope of knowledge, um, you know, would solve this problem. So I ended up starting a company that was effectively an online financial advisor. And the idea was to use the scale of software to make human financial advisors more affordable. Human financial advisors more affordable. Okay, interesting. Uh, so it's not like just like an affiliate model, like NerdWallet, where you're just like, oh, you should have this credit card. We'll direct you to that page. Oh, so we, we hired financial advisors. We charged about $1,000 a year, which was you know a fraction of what it would cost to hire a financial planner otherwise, and ran the whole process online through software. Wow. Cool. And it, it cool idea. Work. It did not work, huh? 
It did not work. <laughs> well, it's kind of a change of behavior, right? Like people really aren't like used to paying at financial advisors. They give them like percentages of their money and stuff like that. But just writing a check for a thousand dollars was 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 that was that part of it? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think the challenge is financial planning when you don't have so much money that you have very specific needs is something that adds a lot of value to your life in the future, almost no value to your life in the present and costs money to upfront and takes time upfront. And so if you talk to most people and you say, Hey, do you want to get your finances in order? They say, yes. And you say, do you want to get your finances in order right now? They're like, well, like maybe we can do it next week (laughs) after. So the challenge was, acquiring customers was so expensive because people were never ready to do it now. Like financial advice is just something that seems like something everyone wants, but very few people want it and very few people want it right now. Yep. Um, And so it was a challenge for us as a company and where we ultimately ended up, we'd raised about $10 million and the thing, the thing we thought we decided we should have done, you know, halfway through the, you know, three years later, my co-founder and I were like, look, if we could do this again, we would build this without humans. We'd build this entirely with software and we would offer people products that would automate the things they need to do. So it took less time, but that, you know, weren't trying to package up human advice because we, we kind of learned that there's a handful of things you need to do. People generally have some idea of what they are and get advice from friends and family and online. And Sure, you might need to be able to give them a little advice if they don't know it, but the real value in what you can do to build a big company is to take all the things that they need to do to manage their finances and automate all of those processes. So we thought, oh, wow, okay, we still have $4 million. What if we effectively lay off most of the company and we shrink down to a small startup again and we rebuild from the ground up? And you know, we thought, well, in order to do that, we need to build a product that kind of gets people in the door so that we can build the relationship to automate their entire financial life. And around that time, I met Andy, the CEO of Wealthfront, and he was like, hey, we built this product, our cash account, and it's getting people in the door. But I also think the future is automating everyone's financial life. And I want someone to run that entire future. Do you want to like bypass the three years of going to build a product before you can get to doing the thing you ultimately want to do? Come here and do that and bring your team over and you guys can work on it. And, you know, our company was not successful in that, you know, we didn't succeed on our own. And the IP was probably more in our heads than anything tangible. So, you know, it's not like a, an acquisition where people made money, but it was an opportunity for us to continue working on something that was really meaningful to a lot of the team um, and, and do that at a company that had a lot more scale. Yeah. I mean, so cool. How, how, how did you guys meet? How did you meet the CEO? So... An investor who I had tried for years to convince to give money to us when we were raising money at my startup, Grove, um, sat on the board at Wealthfront. And so when we were trying to figure out what to do, I said, hey, you know, you never thought my idea was good in the first place. Uh, you weren't an investor, but you invest in this industry a lot. Uh, would you be willing to sit down and talk to me about you know, what you think we should do? And as I was describing what I cared about, he was like, you got to meet with Wealthfront. And I was like, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know anyone there. He's like, trust me. And like one meeting in and I was like, I want to work here. I want to wow. work on this problem. That is, that is a cool problem. So, uh, I mean, this journey has been really, really, I, I, I relate to it a lot. I really, I really am enjoying the story. So let's get to the last piece of the story here. The, the problem that Wealthfront is solving, you know, 
banks today have like all these like checking accounts and investments and it's like all these different things and why like what problem does that solve for for customers nothing so uh tell us the idea of of uh the account in the future is that everything is all in one. You put your money in, it separates it into savings and checking and investments and just kind of like all happens automatically. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think if you look at the mission of the company, it's, you know, we want to build a financial system that favors people, not institutions. And if you look at how broken the system is today, Banks have tons of fees, whether it's a maintenance fee, an overdraft fee, uh, whether they just don't give you your money as soon as it's deposited and you know they make interest by holding it for a time. Uh, I think one of the that's like one of the biggest problems with how things work today. And it's something that we're set out to fight against and build something better. And you know, the the shift of our vision to focus on self-driving money, which I described earlier is really to try to put more of the power in the client, in the customer, and enable them to you know, thrive and succeed in their financial lives. And you know, it's good for us if the customer is successful, and, and that alignment makes for a really fun time building products. Yeah, I agree, Chris. It, it, it is a great vision, and I totally can, can see that happening. So how long have you been there for? So I've been here about a little over a year. I think my anniversary was uh, last week. And yeah. so, Congrats. you know, and, and just yesterday, uh, we launched the first uh, product that I've been working on uh, called Autopilot. And, you know, so it's it's kind of great timing to connect, like, you know, a, a year in and we launched the first product that is kind of a piece of that self-driving money vision. Okay. So how, um, does, how, does, how does it work today? Yep. So pick an account that you have, whether that's your checking account or your Wealthfront cash account, uh, set how much money you want to make sure you have in that account, a maximum balance. And anytime you have more than that, we'll automatically put it to work. Uh, you know, so put it in your investment account or, or save it in a, in a cash savings account. So uh, you know, what we've noticed was that people hate spending the time to manage their finances, but actually have somewhat of an idea of what they want to do. So most people have figured out how much money to leave in their checking account because, you know, they've had to do it. It's like a decision they had to make already, uh, but didn't log in every time they got a paycheck or every time their finances changed and, and reevaluate how much they should keep and where they should put it and, you know, make those transfers. And so we figured you tell us what you want to do and we'll put it to work for you. So it's more like a financial assistant than, you know, someone trying to take over all of the, the work and thinking. We want to let you stay in control, but not do the work. Uh, yeah, exactly. I love it. You've got goals, but like I want to build a house, right? So I have to hire someone, just build me a house, or I go to Home Depot and like, I need nails and a hammer. And like that was the old way. New way is like I I want to live in a nice house. Let me tell. Let me t- let me talk to Chris at Wealthfront. He'll make that happen. Yeah, and so you could imagine a world where you tell us, "Hey, I want to buy a house, and it's going to cost me." you know, a $200,000 down payment, uh, depending on where you live. And so you need to save for that over time. And so anytime there's excess cash, let's move that money to the place where we'll earn the most so that when time, when the time comes, you have enough for that down payment. And as life gets more complicated, you know, maybe you also need to save for your kid's college. Maybe you need to save for your retirement. You know, imagine a world where all of that can just happen. Like the excess cash goes to wherever it needs to go to be aligned with your goals. Ah, so, so cool. That's what we're building. Yeah. So Chris, I'll get you out of here on this. Like the future, where does, what does is, what is this product look like in you know, X amount of years? I mean, that's, 
That's that's exactly it. I don't even know if it's going to take you know a big X number of years to get there. Uh, you know, we've launched uh, you know a checking features into our cash account. So you know, you basically we tried to combine the best of savings and cash. So it, you know, your checking account at, at most banks doesn't pay any interest, and your savings account doesn't have all the features like a debit card, like a being able to pay your bills, a direct deposit, your paycheck. So that was kind of the the cornerstone of a lot of our products now is that we have this account that serves as the best of both both checking and savings yes. and it, and by you know using that account we can serve as the base for all of this and so i think where we go in the future is we know a lot about your behaviors by you know seeing the transactions that flow we know exactly how much money to keep to pay your bills and everything and we know exactly where you need to put the money because you've used our tools to plan for the future and you don't really have to think about the day to day. Like you could go about living your life and not worry about having to move money to the right place and make sure it's at the right place at the right time. And we'll just take care of it for you. And you know, that that's, I think a world that people want to live in where they're not spending their days fretting out over money. It's the number one cause of stress and divorce in America. So I think, you know, we don't teach enough about money in schools. And so I, I think we want to make sure we provide a lot of content so people can understand it, but not have to do all the day-to-day work. Yeah. No, I uh, I love it. I totally, I'm totally bought in. Like I said at the beginning of this, I'm already a, a customer. So I'm excited for all these, all these cool automation tools. Make my life very, very simple. Yeah. Great. Thanks right, for being a customer. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the podcast. This was, like I said, so much fun speaking with you, Chris. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening today. If you like moving up, the best way you can support us is by telling your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks.